You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gaston Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. Uh, Go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Again, that is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. And today we're going to be looking at a sermon about seeing Jesus correctly. Uh, This morning, as we gather for worship, we are here for a specific purpose. And we have discussed that much over the last few weeks We've talked about how Christ is to have the preeminence in all things, as Colossians tells us, but he is preeminent in our worship and that the reason we are here is Christ alone and the worship of his great name. It's all about Jesus, not Jesus plus, but Jesus. And today we will see some people in this text who came to worship Jesus for the sake of Jesus. These people were serious about seeing Jesus. And so this morning, let's see what the text has to tell us about seeing Jesus correctly. Again, this is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. I'll be reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we come thanking you for your grace and goodness. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together as believers today to worship you. Lord, we realize that we would be totally hopeless and helpless were it not for your goodness and grace to us. And Lord, we pray that today our worship would be honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, the songs we have sung and will sing, Lord, the the gifts we have given, Lord, the word that we will hear. Father, we pray that in all of this, you would be honored and pleased and glorified because, Lord, that is our purpose. That is our chief end. And so, Lord, as we come into this time today, Lord, we pray that your will would be done in our life. We pray that today we would not simply be spectators. We would not simply be hearers. But rather that we would be doers. Rather that we would be people who reflect your grace and your gospel to those around us. That we would be a church that is passionate about your word and that lives it faithfully. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would encourage us. Father, you would convict us, you would challenge us. And the Lord, you would do as your word tells us. You will equip us for the tasks that you have ahead of us. And so, Lord, we pray that today this message would be yours rather than my own. You would move me out of the way. Use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim your message to your people. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this point in the Gospel of John, we have kind of turned the page. We have gone from Jesus' ministry and have moved into the last week before his crucifixion. The second half of the Gospel of John, it deals with this part of his life. And during this time, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem just as Scripture foretold. Uh, We saw this last week. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people are shouting, Hosanna. This is the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. But we saw last week that the crowd shouting Hosanna had the entirely wrong idea about Jesus. Uh, The crowds, they thought he was coming as a political conqueror. Remember, we talked about how the palm branches were the national symbol of Israel. If you weren't with us last week, the palm branches that they were waving are actually uh, a symbol of independence. It was on their coins. It was a, a political symbol. And so the people are waving these palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna, which again means, Lord, please save us. But they meant it politically because they thought that the saving was them being saved from Rome, not their sin. This whole idea and the fallout that comes from it, the priests trying to kill him, uh, the people turning so quickly and shouting crucify him, all of these things happened because they saw Jesus incorrectly. They had a wrong view of Christ. We talked about that last week. We've talked about this to a degree before in recognizing that every cult, every false religion, every heresy starts with the wrong idea about who Jesus is. It's massively important for us because if we don't have the right understanding of Jesus, we don't truly have Jesus. You see, it's not enough for us to worship whatever we want, however we want, and and stick a label on it and call it Jesus. It won't save us to believe in a Jesus that was just a smart man. It won't save us to believe in a Jesus that was just a prophet. But rather, we have to believe in a Jesus that is Lord of all, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, truly God and truly man, He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and is now at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. That's the Jesus that we need to believe in. That's the Jesus we must worship, and that is the Jesus that these Greeks were desperate to see. In our text, we are introduced immediately to these Greeks who have come to worship. They arrive on the scene during this time of Passover. And you'll remember again a few weeks ago, and if you weren't here... This is the week that everybody came to Jerusalem. All of the Jews from all over, they flocked into Jerusalem to worship at the temple and to observe the feast of Passover. And the Bible says that among those that went to the feast were some Greeks. And these Greeks come to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, people have speculated about why they came to Philip. Uh, some people say that maybe it's because Philip was, uh, had a Greek background or things like that. But the point is, they come to Philip because he's a disciple of Jesus. I think that's the most important thing to remember here. They come to Philip because he was a disciple. He would have been someone who conversed regularly, who knew where Jesus was, who knew what was going on. But they come to him, and, and there's just this tinge of desperation in those words. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is an expression of deep desire. When we look into the wording here, we we see that really this is, sir, we would really, really like to see Jesus. It's almost a cry for help. But what sticks out to many of us is why in the world were Greeks 
asking this question. Why are Greeks here in the first place? This is a a festival of the Jews. This is Passover. Some people suggest that these were Greek Jews. But again, the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, The Greek Jews were referred to very specifically with the term of Hellenists. And uh, really, all the indicators that these would be Greek Jews are not present in this text. And these guys were likely people who believed in God, and the official word that they used for them back in those days was proselytes. These were Greek people who heard the Old Testament prophets, and they believed in the God of the Bible, right? Maybe a Jew had shared with them uh, the words of, for instance, Isaiah, or uh, they had shared with them the, the words of the law, These Greeks would have heard that and believed in the God of the Old Testament, but in those days, they were not full Jews who were circumcised, and they were only allowed in the outside portion of the temple in an area known as the court of the Gentiles. In the court of the Gentiles, there's this big dividing wall that said that only Jews were allowed on the other side. Basically, in the court of the Gentiles, what would happen is that these these Greek proselytes, they could see what was going on on the other side. They could see the worship taking place, but they could not participate. You see, these Greeks, they could see the worship of God. They couldn't truly be involved in it. They knew that God was real. They knew his law should be kept. But because they were not Jews, they could not participate in that worship. Now, why is this important? It's because it's a big part of why they wanted to see Jesus. You see, they, again, would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament and the prophecies about the Messiah. They would have heard all the talk about who Jesus was. They may have even been in the crowd waving palm branches along with the Jews. They wanted to see Jesus because they are obviously hoping that he can help them. You see, if they can't have access to the temple, maybe, just maybe, they can have access to this person who's the Messiah. They're hopeless unless maybe he can help them. You see, they wanted to see Jesus because he was the hope of something better. They might not have known what that was. They might not have known exactly what was happening, but they knew that this was the hope of something greater. They just wanted to worship And the way that we know this is that these people come to worship knowing that they couldn't even participate. So when they hear that the Messiah is in town, they are excited because this may be their only chance. See, their separation from being able to worship the Lord led them to run to Jesus and do everything they could to meet with Him. Knowing that Jesus was their only hope made them see Him in a beautiful and hopeful and worshipful light. Now again, I'm not saying they knew everything that was coming. But they knew that things were about to change. On the other hand, I think today, so-called American Christianity seems to take Jesus for granted. Instead of the desperation, we have a comfort And I think this is why, as we talked about last week, we want Jesus plus, and it's because we've grown so comfortable with the idea of Jesus, such that he is a given. Well, of course, yeah, we we come to church, we talk about Jesus, that's that's what we're supposed to do, it's great, it's good, but, you know, when are we going to get to something else? We have forgotten the desperation 
of living without him. We forget that we too used to be separated from God by an unmoving wall. And the only way that changed was Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We forget that he was our only hope. For those of you who have spent the majority of your life as believers, I know that's many of us. We better not forget that we were just as separated from God and just as hopeless. I mention this because I think some people tend to think that because they got saved as a child, somehow their sins were lesser than those who were saved as adults. Listen, just because you were saved at at six or ten, it doesn't mean that you were any less of a sinner. It just means that by God's grace you were saved at an early age. But it doesn't mean you were any less helpless, any less hopeless. We were all separated from God, completely alienated by our sin, enemies of God, deserving of wrath. And when we forget that, we often become entitled and spoiled. We think, of course I'm saved. Of course God is going to bless me. And when we view God that way, we forget what he saved us from. Our view of Jesus goes bad. And again, our worship suffers. When we remember our sin and what Jesus saved us from and that he is our only hope, that we didn't earn it and couldn't be saved any other way, our view of Christ is one of worship and thanksgiving. And so I want to encourage you this morning not to have a stagnant, like entitled, taken-for-granted view of Jesus. How do you view Jesus? How do you see Jesus? And again, not just what we say we see, but how do we functionally do this? Do, Do we see him as something simply to be worked into our schedule? Something we do on Sundays? Do we see him as fire insurance against hell? Or do we see him correctly as the Lord of all, worthy to be praised for all eternity, worth our very lives? See, these Greeks were on to something. We all need to see Jesus. If you don't have a desire to worship Jesus, I don't think you've truly seen him. So whether you have seen Jesus before or whether this is your first time truly looking at what God's word says about Christ, I want to show you in this text how the Bible tells us we should see Jesus. How should we see Jesus? I've got three ways I think that this text speaks into our view of Christ. This is not exhaustive, but this is what's here in this text. Three ways. The first one is that we need to see his glory. Verse 23, Jesus answered them. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We talk a lot about the glory of God in this church. And rightly so, right? We believe in that Reformation principle of sola deo gloria. That means that everything we do is to the glory of God. So we talk about it, right? Our mission statement, uh, when we have the billboard out there on the side of the mountain, it says that we are glorifying God and leading others to do the same. 
And my prayer is that the glory of God glorifying him would be a part of our DNA. That it would be part of our reputation as a church. That when people see Bellevue, they think not of us or how great we are or how big a church we are or how trendy a church we are, but rather they think about who God is, how big God is, and how much he is worthy to be praised. It's not about us, right? It's about him. We've made that point clear. But we cannot truly glorify God if we forget the central point of the gospel. You see, Jesus throughout the gospel of John has continued telling people every time these things are, are kind of happening, it's, it's not yet time. The hour is not yet here. It's not yet the appointed hour. But here, Jesus says, the hour has come. For what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. How? By the cross. You see, he was glorified by being humiliated for our sake. He he was glorified. People will now be able to be saved from their sins by his grace because he died on the cross taking the wrath and punishment we deserved. When Jesus is talking about being glorified, He isn't talking about all those people cheering for the wrong idea and waving those palm branches. He is talking about being humiliated on the cross because it's by his stripes that we are healed. We're talking about glorifying God. We have to see what Jesus has done. The beauty of it. And then again, surrender our entire life to him. When we look at at this conception uh, of being glorified, Jesus is saying, again, that he is going to the cross. The time is now. Again, this is the the last week. He, He rides in on Sunday. Conceivably, this is happening again. This is happening between there. We don't know specifically what day. But Jesus is is in this middle time between riding in on Sunday and his crucifixion. On Friday. The hour's now. It's here. He is going to be crucified. And instead of being praised, he was beaten with a whip that separated bone from flesh. Instead of being crowned with jewels, he received a crown of thorns. Instead of being lifted up on a throne of glory, he was lifted up on a cross. Instead of praise, he was mocked. Instead of being fed the finest food and finest wine, he was given sour drink. He humbled himself to death. He didn't have to die. He chose to die for us. Again, my, my favorite part of the, the crucifixion story is the end where it says that he gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. He was in charge even over his own death. He told him, you can't take my life, but I give it freely. He freely gave his life for us. Don't we dare take the glory of Christ for granted. Don't we dare take the cross for granted. Again, so often we, we see the cross as this beautiful little symbol Right, we, and I mean, I, I see this all the time. We'll see people walking around with a, a cross necklace. Right, I I wear a cross on a chain myself. We see people walking around with them, 
And, and for many of us, it's become almost whitewashed to the point that we see the, this cross as a cutesy little thing. And we forget that it was an instrument of death. We take it for granted. We're so comfortable with this idea. Yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. And we don't often stop and think about what it means. Don't we dare forget that there is nothing greater. We were purchased with the price of his life. And now he is seated at the right hand of God and we forget that. We need to behold his glory. Sometimes we need to just take some time and sit and and just kind of marinate in what God has done for us. Again, we often ask people about the greatest blessings in their life. Um, I joked with Rosalind the other day when I found out that Whataburger was coming to Gadsden that it was the best day of my life. Um, and she was like, really? But I joke about that to make this point. When we think about the greatest blessings that the Lord has given us, so often, our mind, we will we'll say, and I, again, I've been guilty of this in the past, we'll say, oh, the, the Lord has blessed me with this thing, or that thing, or this possession, or even this person in my life. And people say, well, what about salvation? Well, of course, salvation's in there. Of course, you know, it's, it's a given. And we need to realize and remember that there is truly no greater blessing. The things, the people, the stuff, it cannot compare to the grace that God has shown us. And again, maybe the reason that our worship sometimes falls so short of what it should be is because we think the greatest blessing is something he's given us and not his life that he gave We need to behold the glory of Christ. In the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation, we see that there's no need for sun or moon because the glory of God is the light. Revelation 21-23 says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, friends, Jesus' glory is bright. It is brighter than the sun. And yet we often behold it so little. We think of the glory of Christ much like a match that we strike at 1045 on Sunday and it burns out by lunch. The glory of Christ is not a match we strike during service each week that burns dimly and goes out so that we can do whatever we want. Rather, the glory of Christ is brighter than the sun and should guide our every step. It burns brighter than all else. Don't Forget his glory. When we see his glory, we will glorify. The second thing we need to see is his example. Here's in verses 24 through 25. We need to see his example. Christ continues by giving an illustration of the example of his life. Unless a seed... A grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. It is alone. 
But if the seed dies and falls the earth, more wheat will grow out of it, right? Much fruit will come out of it. This is the illustration that he's giving. Truly, truly, he begins. We know that's a sign for us to pay attention. We should pay attention to all of it, but especially when he says truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus' point was his own life. Unless he came to earth and died on the cross, there would not be fruit. We could not be saved, but because he humbled himself and left the splendors of heaven to come to earth and die on the cross for our sin and rose again, we are now saved because of his work. We are the fruit of that effort. Point's clear. Unless I give my life, there will be no fruit. But in verse 25, Jesus connects his example to us as followers. In verse 25, he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus here again, he's connecting this example to us as his followers. He's, he's kind of following an old school sermon outline. Right back in the in the days of preaching class, they taught us that you know in a sermon you usually want to have kind of three elements to every point. You want to have a, an explanation, an illustration, and an application. Jesus ex- has explained, now is the time. I'll be glorified through the cross. He illustrated it through the grain of wheat analogy. But the application is that we follow his example and we live our life completely for him. We need to see the example of Christ and follow it. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that's strong language. That's strong language, right? Now, we need to be careful about what is being said here. Jesus is not saying we should hate our life in the sense that we should make ourselves miserable for no reason or that we shouldn't enjoy life, right? Jesus isn't saying we should just come to the point where we sit around all the time, well, I hate my life. That's not the point. Jesus' words here, and what is being said specifically in the original language as we look into it, essentially he's saying whoever is so in love with themselves that they try to preserve their life loses it. When he says hate, he's meaning the one who disregards their life, meaning that we don't think life is all about us. He's saying here, if you live life all about you and trying to make your life last forever, ultimately you will die and your only accomplishments will die with you. I've seen many people throughout history who claimed that they would live forever only to shortly die thereafter. Again, I I mean, I academically I study cults and let me tell you, all of them, Oh, this person's going to live forever. Six months later, he's in the grave. And you can still go see him. The point is, if we spend our life all about us, if we do everything we can to preserve this life, Right, like the best case scenario, and this, is, this was true during the, the COVID pandemic a lot, right? We have people who, no matter what we try to do to protect our life, we realize that life is fragile. 
It's a vapor. That's what the Bible tells us. And the best case scenario is that maybe if we you know, have just extraordinary grace in our life, we might make it to 120, <laughs> right? That's the oldest person recorded. We need to remember that when we think that this life is all about us, again, we're going to pour all of our effort into ourself. Ultimately, again, those accomplishments, the things that we're about, it dies alongside us. But if we view our life as a living sacrifice, as Paul called us to, and as Jesus illustrates with his own life, if we give up our life serving others, if we die for Christ's sake, then we have truly lost nothing but have fruit even unto eternity. And we see that, and we see that Jesus himself set this example of giving his life for the sake of God's will. Jesus gave his life for God's will, right? He's in the garden, and he says, Lord, I wish that this cup would pass from me, but not my will, but yours. Jesus was saying that his life was totally submitted to the will of the Father. And we, we see that we need to follow that example. We are to view our life not as all about us and what we want, but we are to view our life as a gift from God, whose whole purpose, right, the whole purpose of our life is to glorify and serve Him. Ultimately, we see if it's all about you, you will never bear fruit because you're leading people to glorify the wrong thing, you, But if it's all about the Lord and we point people to him, we will see much fruit as the Lord is glorified. And here's the thing about making it all about ourselves: The best case scenario is that you achieve a little fame in this life. People might know your name. But what's so crazy about that is uh, I was watching, watching sports this weekend and uh, I saw a pastor post this thing. He said, no one cares who won the World Series in the 1960s. He said, they cared. People will never forget us. A record book might not forget them, but we certainly have. The celebrities of yesteryear, the people who were winning awards and writing the best music and all these things, they are forgotten. If we lead people to ourselves, the best hope we have is that they might remember us in 10 years. Again, I heard another preacher explain it this way. He said, you dip your finger in a bowl of water and you pull it out. And he said, the hole that's left is how much people will remember you when you're gone. Now, obviously, we realize that we can leave a legacy a legacy of faith. We can pass our faith down to the next generation and there are things that we can do that will cause certain people to remember us. But my point is that if it's all about glorifying yourself and making yourself to be this big, great person, then ultimately you need to remember that most of the people don't care and won't remember. And that fruit will rot. But if it's about the Lord, if we give our life to Him, the fruit is eternal. If we point people to, to Christ, man, it can change a family, which changes a generation, changes the world. We don't know how the Lord 
is to use us. We know that he has a plan. And that plan could be for us to make an impact on someone who makes tremendous impact. We don't know. But we know that we are called to give our life in service of him and his glory. Finally today, the third thing we need to see here in verse 26 is that we need to see him as Lord and ourselves as servants. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And, and we see here, essentially, the main idea is that the true believers follow Christ. Jesus made this point clear. You will know them right, by their love, by whether or not they follow me, my commandments. And so Jesus is, is making clear here that a true servant of Christ, a true follower of Christ, follows him. And true believers, they go where he is. The Father will honor him. Well done, good and faithful servant. So we see here that as believers, this should be a very basic point, that we see ourselves as servants and him as the Lord. But by nature of being servants, we must also again see him as Lord. And the only way that we're going to follow his example is if we remember that we are his servants and he our master. You see, Paul signed all his letters as a doulos of Christ, meaning slave. If we are truly to be his people, we must follow him. That means even the parts we don't like. If we serve him and follow him, we will surely be with him. Not because of our works, but because it's only by his grace that we can follow him at all. So we have to have that understanding. Because again, how we view God ultimately determines how we view his commandments and whether or not we follow him. I've said it before, if he's the sugar daddy in the sky that just dispenses blessings so that you stay with him, you'll never serve him and always be looking for another blessing. If he's the wise old grandpa in the sky, you're free to disagree and he'll just wink at your sin. If you see him as the, the loving best friend who never sees anything wrong with you, you'll never serve him and you will never change. But if we see him truly as master and Lord of all who bought us with the price of Christ, we have no option but to follow. I, I truly want to encourage you guys to, to take some time. I'm not saying you have to become an expert. But I, I would encourage you, go back and read some church history. And I say this because if you do it, you'll find over, over times of reading different stories, just the way that the Lord has worked in people's lives and how they live this stuff out. And it will inspire you. And so what I, I want to do is kind of close with the story of a man who saw God correctly and whose faithfulness has inspired me as long as I've known this story. The story is out of a man named Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was a, a, a pastor, bishop in the early days of the church, and he ministered under the persecution of Rome. Because of his preaching of Christ, he ultimately was dragged into the Roman arena and martyred. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, uh, he, he just felt the Lord telling him, you must be strong. The crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured. There was this tremendous uproar because he was an old man. He's 86 years old at this point. 
And he's being drug into the arena. The crowd is, is, is in uproar. And so the, the proconsul, the judge, they ask him, they say, are you Polycarp? And he says, yes. And, and as the proconsul hears this, he, he's saying, listen. Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say down with the atheists. In those days they called Christians atheists because they didn't worship the multiple gods in Caesar. So they're telling him, deny Christ, worship Caesar, and we'll let you go because you're old. Polycarp looked grimly at the, the, the heathens and gesturing toward them, he said, down with you atheists. Proconsul told him again, he says, swear, reproach Christ and I'll set you free. And Polycarp says this statement that just sticks with us. He says, for 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp's point was, he says, I have served him for 86 years. I know of his goodness. And his grace. He has done me no wrong. The judge threatens him. He says, I have wild animals. I'll throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. The judge still isn't getting it. He says, if you despise animals, I'll have you burned. Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And as he was to be burned, he prayed this prayer. He says, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. Man. Polycarp's name means much fruit, which is ironic as we think about this story. I often read the stories of martyrs and am left just almost shell-shocked at how faithful they were. And the question always comes to the same, man, how do they do this? How are they so faithful? And how do we take it so lightly? You see, Polycarp knew the glory of Christ. He knew that this life is about glorifying Christ, and he knew that he was a servant to the Master. And when we see Christ correctly, it changes everything. It changes every bit, every aspect of our life, such that we are able to be faithful even in situations like that. 
And I pray that we don't face such persecution. But I also pray that should that ever happen, we stand firm, knowing in whom we have believed. And we're persuaded that he is able to keep us. See, friends, if we don't see Jesus that way, we will crumble and fall. We will fold under pressure. We won't worship. We won't live a life of Christ-likeness or holiness. We certainly won't esteem others as better than ourselves. But if we see Christ, the glory of his cross, if we follow his example, we see him as the Lord of all, and we say, Lord, thank you for letting me be your servant. I guarantee you our lives will be different. Our church will be different, and that will impact this community and ultimately, hopefully, the nations as well. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you today, and Lord, we recognize we just need to see more of you. Lord, we know that the way we see that is through your word. Father, we see what it has told us. And, and so today, Lord, I pray that throughout this time, we have seen more of your beauty, your goodness, and your grace to us. So, Father, I pray that if there's someone here today who to this point has been blinded by their sin, Lord, the, the gospel has been veiled to them so far, that, Lord, you would open their eyes. Help them to see, to trust in you. Lord, I pray. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday morning at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week. Lord, it has been dim that, Father, you would open our eyes to the glory of your great name. Lord, you would remind us of our hopelessness in your grace. Lord, you would remind us of the work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, you would remind us of the calling that you have placed on each of our lives. Lord, the call to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. May we do so cheerfully, thankfully, and worshipfully all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.